We're looking this evening at Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, and verses 19 to 31. It is a passage I'm conscious of having preached on not too long ago, so I hope you'll bear with me as we do look again into this passage. It concerns an unnamed rich man who's often called Dives, uh, from the Latin word for rich, and then the other man, the poor man, Lazarus, who is named here in the scriptures. It is a passage which does raise many questions, particularly amongst theologians, uh, many questions that are not hard, uh, that are not easy to answer. Uh, questions concerning what is often called the intermediate state, that is the state into which souls go after death uh, and before the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And probably, perhaps many of those questions, it's not really finally possible to answer at this point. And yet we should not lose sight of the fact that while there are some things that are not clear because we're not told enough, there are other things, several things that are very clear. And it's these that we're particularly looking at tonight. And especially the intense contrasts that the Lord Jesus is here bringing to uh, his hearers. And these are surely intended uh, by Christ as a kind of wake-up call. We notice in the passage we read that his hearers are not just his disciples, but there are also those there who were hostile to him, who mocked his teaching, and who, as verse 14 tells us, they were Pharisees who were lovers of money. They loved this world, they loved this world's rewards and this world's goods, and they didn't like what they were hearing from Jesus particularly the challenging statement that no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and material things. And that's the context into which this passage comes. And it is a context that we need to remember because the lessons are as important today as they were in the days of Jesus. We notice firstly uh, what we might call things about this life in the circumstances of Dives and Lazarus. And the first thing to be mentioned, of course, is the immense contrast that's there in their uh, condition. Um, we have concerning the rich man, we are told that he uh, was someone who uh, was clothed in purple and fine linen, and in his day, in these days, uh, purple was a particularly sumptuous, a particularly expensive clothing, uh, and he fared sumptuously every day. And then we have Lazarus, uh, this poor man, laid at his gate, full of sores, desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The dogs emphasized to us, I think, the particularly uh, distressing circumstances of this beggar. Were they, creeping, were they competing for the crumbs, the scraps of food that he had thrown to him? Was there even a sense of pity about these dogs? Probably not. 
but they were licking him and licking his sores. And we get a sense of his helpless vulnerability here in this, particularly emphasized by the fact that to the Jew, as uh, both Lazarus and the rich man are clearly Jews, the rich man calls Abraham father Abraham and Abraham calls him son uh, and Abraham speaks to him uh, as a Jew and clearly Lazarus was a Jew Uh, to them the dogs would be unclean and so the dire straits of this man are particularly brought before us we have two opposite ends here of the spectrum and there's of course another contrast that is brought out as the passage continues the fact is that Lazarus is a Jew who knows his God Lazarus is someone who we would today call a believer a true believer someone who on death goes immediately to heaven or into the bosom of Abraham as it's called whereas Dives is not now we need perhaps just to note another thing that it needn't to be like this in terms of this particular local situation concerning Dives and Lazarus. The fact is that as a Jew, the rich man would know that he had a duty to help Lazarus. He had a duty towards him because it's written in the Mosaic law, in the law of Moses, in the Pentateuch, these very words. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. And so uh, we, we clearly see that there was both the duty and the scope of this rich man to help Lazarus, and yet he does not. But our first principle, the first thing we need to notice, and this is perhaps just not quite so obvious on the the surface, although the contrast is there, that we still need to understand from this passage that our outward circumstances are no sure guide to our spiritual state. Our outward circumstances, whether rich or poor, whether wealthy or at the other end of the spectrum, are no sure guide to our spiritual states. We need to understand that as we look at the whole of this account, whether or not it is a parable or whether or not it is a factual uh, circumstance that Jesus is telling us, we, we can't be sure. But we need to understand that at the last, the issue is not whether one is rich or whether the other is not rich. But the issue is this, will they hear Moses and the prophets? That is the issue. The issue is not just wealth or lack of wealth. Now, it is true, of course, that in the Old Testament, there are general principles concerning wealth or lack of wealth. In the book of Deuteronomy, again, going back, to the Mosaic law, we are led to understand that the children of Israel had this tremendous promise from God, or a whole series of promises, 
that if you will obey the voice of the Lord diligently, if you'll keep his commandments, all these blessings shall come upon you. And then it itemizes all the blessings. Blessings in the city, blessings in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, your cattle, and so on. Health, wealth, and prosperity. And success against your enemies are all promised there to those who are obedient to the law of the Lord. And you have similar statements in the book of Proverbs. But we need also to understand that these are general principles, these are guidelines rather than absolutist statements. Because we have also other scriptures uh, in the Old Testament, for example, such as Psalm 73, where the psalmist tells us that he was so distressed that those who were ungodly, those who were wicked, were prosperous, that they had more than heart could wish, their eyes bulged with abundance, as he puts it in the psalm. And yet they scoff, they speak wickedly concerning oppression, and so on. And this is a a problem to the psalmist. At least it is until the end of the psalm. And, And he pulls himself together. And he begins to think spiritually about it. Or if you turn to the book of Habakkuk, and see that the prophet Habakkuk had a similar concern concerning those who were not Jews, and yet who seemed to prosper amidst great wickedness. And he talks about, you are of, speaking to God, you are of purer eyes than, than to behold evil. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours? In other words, why do you let them get away with it? So clearly, while the Bible gives us general principles, at least in the Old Testament days, that... Uh, Wealth, health, wealth, and prosperity is generally a fruit of obedience and godliness. It's not a firm guidance for every situation. So what this passage is not teaching us is what is today called liberation theology. It is not teaching us that people are blessed simply because they are poor. It's not teaching us that people are wicked simply because they are rich. We can think of people in the Old Testament, such as Abraham and Job, who were very wealthy, and yet they were blessed. God blessed them. God was pleased with them. We can come into the New Testament and read of someone like Lydia, who was a seller of purple cloth, this expensive kind of clothing Uh, And she becomes a Christian in the book of Acts, chapter 16. We read about her, and she opens her house. She uses her wealth, she uses her prosperity to help the church. We read of others in the household of Caesar, and even the household of Herod, who clearly must have been fairly well off, and they were believers. And they're not castigated because of their position and their influence. So that this is not teaching us in and of itself that it is the way to heaven just to be rich and the way to keep out of heaven, uh, the way to heaven to be poor and to keep out of heaven just be rich. It's certainly not teaching us that. 
even though it's about a very rich man and about a very poor man. So we need to understand that none of us should mistake our outward circumstances for inward grace. None of us should look at ourselves if we are prosperous and say, this is a sign that I am inevitably one of God's blessed. Alternatively, none of us should look at our conditions and our uh, circumstances, and if they are poor and if they are struggling, should immediately conclude that therefore God is against me. That is not what this passage is teaching. And we have to say these things because it is a passage that's often misunderstood. The interpretation is here in Luke 16, verse 13. The guiding principle is no man can serve two masters. No man can serve two because either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a, an idol. It's the name for an idol. It's here personified in terms of material goods. Of course, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that. It's harder for someone who has wealth and prosperity, as virtually all of us in this room do, compared to the rest of the world. It is harder for us to be Christian disciples compared to many in this world who are so lacking in goods. And Paul writes, for example, to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy, and he has something to say to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you've got to say this to those who are rich. He says, you need to warn them that we brought nothing into this world, I'm quoting from 1 Timothy, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. You need to warn them that if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. You need to warn them that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, but the love of money. And then he says, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. He doesn't say let them sell it all off. He says let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. So he's saying it is possible to be a believer whether you are rich or poor, but it is more difficult for those who are rich. And it happens to be in the case of this man, Dives, that his riches had indeed stolen his heart and his affections. So that's a a, a look at this from the prospect of what we might call life. Now let's look at the whole teaching here from the prospect of death. Now just as outward circumstances are no sure guide to our spiritual state, it's quite clear from what Jesus teaches here that funeral arrangements are no sure guide to the final condition of the deceased. Funeral arrangements are no sure guide to the final condition of the deceased. We read that the beggar 
died. We don't know what happened next. Was he taken to the Valley of Gehenna outside Jerusalem, the place reserved for criminals and executed people and people who died on the street and just thrown into some pit? We're not told. We read, on the other hand, that the rich man also died and was buried. Clearly, there was some sort of service or some sort of ceremony, some sort of marking of the occasion. He was buried. But after death, the angels carried the beggar into Abraham's bosom. But the rich man went straight to hell. His soul went straight to hell, awaiting his final union with his body to be consigned to that dreadful place. Funeral arrangements are no sure guide. And so today we might hear of and read about African Christians, Christians in Burkina Faso or Nigeria, who are ambushed by IS people, extremists, and massacred and thrown into a ditch somewhere in the desert, and nobody perhaps is able to have a proper Christian funeral for them. But that is no guide as to where they are. Because if they're in Christ, their death is glorious. It's the death of a martyr, and it's a death that's known by the Lord Jesus, and they go straight to him. Just as we cannot judge people by their outward circumstances, we cannot even judge people by their outward circumstances at their funeral. And this leads us, of course, to the very sharp end, we might say, or the very encouraging end of what Jesus is saying here. We go on now to think of the afterlife. And it is quite clear, as Jesus is speaking about these contrasts, that he's telling us that there is a heaven to gain and there is a hell to shun. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. The word Hades is used here. It is a quite legitimate translation because it is talking about the state of death, but it's the state of death before the end of the world and the final judgment. The intermediate state. And when Christ returns, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and heaven and hell, it'll be, as it were, confirmed then and our bodies will be united with our souls and we'll go to one place or the other. And we need to see this tremendous contrast. There's just two places here, only two places. Heaven, it's not the word that's used, but it's it's a lovely sort of metaphor to speak of heaven, Abraham's bosom, the bosom of Abraham. Uh, paradise is another word that's used in the Bible to describe this wonderful place. Uh, there's paradise, there's heaven, the, the bosom of Abraham, and there's hell. And there's no other places. And it's quite clear there's no movement between these places. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. So uh, he's speaking of something here that's never-ending. 
and never-ending goes on for a very long time. It's never-ending. It's fixed forever. Did you know that the person who teaches us most about hell in the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the Gospels? And he tells us here in no uncertain terms that it is a place of torment. Father Abraham uh, cries the rich man, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the finger of his water, dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. You'd have thought just one drop of water wouldn't do too much to help him. Of course not, but it just emphasizes that even one drop of water would relieve the situation. It would bring that momentary relief. And so we're, we're left with an overwhelming sense of the awfulness of that place of punishment for sin, where God justly punishes those who break his law. What do you make of the statement towards um, the end of the narrative where the rich man begs Father Abraham that he would send Lazarus to his father's house to testify to his five brothers, lest they also come to this place of torment? I think the first thing we can make of it is that uh, Dives is well aware of the sins of his brothers. Dives is well aware that they are as selfish and as covetous as he is and as lacking in regard to the law of the Lord as he has been. That's the first thing we're aware of. And the second thing we're perhaps aware of, although this is an inference, is that Lazarus may well have sought to speak to Dives about his Lord and Master and Saviour, because he knew that Lazarus was able to give a testimony. That admittedly is uh, an is something inferred, but it seems likely. But why is he trying to keep his brothers from this place of torment? Is it because there's still altruism and kindness in the heart of this man in this terrible place? Is it because there is what some have called post-mortem repentance, that is the opportunity to repent of your sins after death? Indeed not. The Bible teaches no such thing. It's entirely because this man doesn't want to increase his torment. Why? Well, because he knows that he has helped by his own lifestyle. He has helped the lifestyle of his brothers. And he doesn't want that to add to the torment, the mutual recrimination, the mutual hatred of them as they're there under the judgment of God, it was sin running rampant. And it does just add, this is a solemn thought, but it does just add, does it not, to the thought of the hellishness of hell, to think of how it will be with family members, particularly those who we have been responsible for, if we haven't helped them to understand the awfulness of hell and the utter need to go to heaven. If we failed in our duties 
to our, to our children or to our grandchildren. Listen to what it says here in Deuteronomy 6. These words which I command you today, says Moses, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. In the light of that statement, how awful it will be for parents who have failed to take their children to hear the gospel preached, failed to read the Bible to them, failed to teach them and instruct them, and how dreadful to be in that awful place with those who they should have served in that way. And then there's something else here in Dives' speech which isn't, again, it's not altruism. It's not anything that suggests repentance. No, Father Abraham, he says, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And you see what he's, he's implying here. He's implying that if God doesn't do something else, it'll be his fault. It'll be God's fault that his brothers should come to that place. When Abraham says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one should rise from the dead. In other words, they have all that they need not to go to hell. How true that is, friends. We have all that we need. We have the Bible, we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. We have the glorious gospel of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We have the love of God explained to us how God sent his son to die for our sins. Even when we were enemies, he came and died for us. Enemies through our wicked works. Yes, he saw ahead in time and he saw what we were like as we were born in Adam. And he saw our, 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 our lives, our, our imaginations, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our selfishness. And all that's gone on in our filthy lives. He saw all these things. And before we ever asked him, before we ever wanted him, he said to his son, Son, go into the world and save a vast number of people. Shed your blood for them. And the son willingly did so. He said, Lo, I come to do your will, O God, a body you have prepared for me. And he comes into the womb of Mary. And he comes with one purpose which is to save his people from their sins. And it's all here in the Bible. It's all here in Moses, in the prophets, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and interpreted for us by the New Testament, by the apostles. If one should go from the dead, they will repent. Well, someone did go back from the dead. There's irony here, of course, in the words of Jesus. One did go back from the dead, and they didn't repent, by and large. By and large, the nation didn't repent. And they suffered annihilation in AD 70 at the hands of the Romans. Jesus foresaw it all. And this leads us to the great lesson, the one big lesson which we can draw from this passage. In this life, what matters fundamentally is not our outward circumstances. What matters fundamentally is not what people think of us, whether they give us a big funeral or, or we're just forgotten about. 
What matters fundamentally in this life is to be prepared for the next life. And to be prepared for the next life, what matters fundamentally is that we should hear Moses and the prophets and, of course, now the apostles. Notice that Abraham, as God's servant, says here, or doesn't say here, I should say, that it doesn't matter whether or not you've seen miracles. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What a miracle. But Abraham isn't giving any of that. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one should rise from the dead. It's not a miracle we need. It's not a visitation of a ghost or a spirit or an angel. Someone coming back from the dead. That's not what we need. And in one sense, just in one sense alone, it's not even Christ's resurrection we need. Although we firmly believe that on the third day he rose from the dead according to the scriptures, it's not even that miracle in and of itself that we need. What we need is faith in our hearts, trust in God and his word and what is written in it, and above all, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the lesson. That's the lesson. Where do you stand? Where does each of us stand in the light of that lesson? Dives knew all about his five brothers, and he knew where they were heading. And let's face it, brothers and sisters, friends, We all know where we're heading personally before God and we can have a shrewd idea where our family members are heading. We have a shrewd idea as to who their God is, who they're serving, God or mammon. And the need of each of us and their need, the need of the whole world, is this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ which tells them the way to escape hell and to win heaven the way to come into the very presence of God through Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, to be accepted, to be welcomed, to be brought into the comfort and delight and loveliness of fellowship with our Saviour and fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's through faith in Christ, our Saviour and our glorious Lord.